Hello, welcome to Remember When. I'm your host, Carl Schulteis. UMGA TV and the Historical Society are continuing this series as an oral history project of life and community in Upper Marion Township. In their own words, we want the people who live the history of the township to tell us about that history. This edition features Bob Kratz. Bob recalls his series in the Army Air Corps during World War II, as well as living in the Candlebrook section of the township. Let's sit back and listen to Bob Kratz, Remember When. Bob, thanks for coming in today. Really appreciate you taking the time out. Glad to do it, yeah. Carl. You can pers uh, give us a, a unique perspective on the township because of your uh, history as a photographer for the, uh, for the, the local newspapers. I think that's terrific. So let's go back in time and uh, talk about uh, where were you born? Norristown. Norristown. And in my 87 years, I've never lived more than five miles from Norristown. Until two years ago, I went out to Bluebell. That's oh. probably eight or nine, nine miles. Okay. So, well, tell me a little bit about your family, your mother, your father. My father was born in Norristown. My mother was born in Roxborough as was my wife, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm the oldest of six children. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, we lost a brother in Houston, and six months after that, we lost a sister in Maryland, but there's still four of us, one in Arizona, and a brother in Norristown, and a sister in King of Prussia. I see, okay. We lived less than a mile apart until I sold. Uh, when you were, whereabouts in the Norristown area were you born uh, and, and you lived? Um, when I was five years old, my parents bought a house in Audubon. That's the five miles okay. from Norristown. <laughs> and uh, then uh, when I was a month from finishing Norristown High School, we moved back. My uh, youngest sister had rheumatic fever. In those days, that was usually fatal. And uh, she'd started to recover, so my parents thought we'd better be back in town where we're closer to stores and things. And, and I graduated Norristown High School. I worked at Taylor Fiber for five years and then joined the Air, Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps. Which now is the U.S. Air Force. Okay. The, um, this was right after high school. Right the, after high school, five years no, at five Taylor Fiber. Taylor Fiber. Then okay. entered the okay. service. What did, what did you do at Taylor Fiber? I was a machine operator. Mm -hmm. Ran a machine, uh, took two men uh, that... Uh, most of our paper, uh, I, I was in the paper mill, and they made their own paper to produce uh, Bakelite and uh, vulcanized fiber. So I helped on a machine that uh, you'd, you'd open a bale of rags and throw huge handfuls into the machine. It would whirl them around and beat the dirt out of them and then they go on to a conveyor into another room. Okay, and uh, the and you were in that position for, you said for five years then? Yes. Okay, 
The, tell me a little bit, going back again, about your mother and dad. What did your father do for a living? He was a purchasing agent uh, at the old Diamond State Fiber Company in Bridgeport. And they were bought out by Continental Fiber from Wilmington. And of course, they started at the top firing people. When they got down to his level, mm -hmm. he was gone. Mm -hmm. But then John Taylor, who owned uh, Diamond State Fiber, uh, he got hold of the man who had been the plant manager and he says, Jake, this was Dr. Jacobs. He said, Jake, do you know your friends of mine are on the bread line? Why don't we build a factory and put them back to work? And that was in the Depression. Uh, my mother, until she got married, was a telephone operator. And she worked in Norristown? Yes. Okay. They met at All Saints Church, Episcopal Church on Hawes Avenue. And I was born on their first wedding anniversary. Okay. My father says I planned it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Were you born at home or in the hospital? Uh, in the hospital. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> and the sister next after me was born in a hospital. After we moved to Audubon, the rest were all born there. Okay. In the house. In the house. Yeah. So now you mentioned that uh, after working at the Taylor Fiber uh, for five years, you went into the Air Force. Yes. Or the Army Air Force. Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps. Go back in a little bit and explain the difference between the Army Air Corps and the Air Force as we call it today. Well, there was no Air Force then. All the, um, the Navy had their air arm also. And the, uh, what is now the Air Force was part of the Army. And not until after the Second World War did it become a service in its own right. But um, <clears throat> I was a bombardier. I spent a year in a B-17. But then I went overseas in a B-24. All right. Now, when, what year was this that you went into service? 1942. Right. I graduated from bombing school and was commissioned a second lieutenant in on July 2nd, 42. How were you selected for bombing school? I applied for it and they approved it. And why did you select the Air, the Air Force, uh, Army Air Corps uh, over, say, any other branch of the service or part of the service? Well... This, you, were wanted, I, you were a volunteer or were you drafted? Volunteer. Yeah. I wanted to fly. And I, in 41, I went in and went to pilot school and I didn't make the grade. And we weren't at war yet, so I got out. But before I got out, I put in applications for bombing school. And um, the following March, 42, they called me. And I went to Midland, Texas to bombing school. We trained on the famous Norden bomb site, uh, which was very highly secret. 
and the upper half of the bomb site was kept in a vault. The lower half of the bomb site was stationary in the airplane, and uh, it became, it was really part of the autopilot. And when we're on the bomb run, um, my bomb site steers the airplane. And then after my bombs are gone, the pilot can flip a switch, which cuts my bomb site out of the autopilot circuit. Uh, the upper part of the bomb site was kept in a vault. I had to sign out for it, and I had to carry a 45, take the bomb site out to the airplane and install it. Now that was in school. Mm -hmm. When I got in V-17s, the darn bomb site was there all the time. time. The um, now you started out on a B-17. Yes. Okay. Tell tell us about the B-17. The B-17 is a beautiful airplane. It's so graceful looking, and the people that flew it swear it's the best plane ever. But once I got used to the B-24, I was glad I made the change. Uh, the B-24 was faster, carried a heavier load, could go farther, and that might not have been to our advantage to go farther <laughs> into enemy territory. <laughs> but uh, they claim that the B-17 could absorb so much damage and still get home. We did too. Mm -hmm. The the B seventeen got all the the flying fortress got all the glory, right? It did. Yeah. Well, Boeing was uh, Boeing always got pretty good press, yeah. and then they picked the perfect name for that airplane, Flying Fortress. In those days, what sounded better? That airplane first was manufactured in the late nineteen thirties. And when I was a bombardier in B-17s, we had some of the A models. And it's a standard gag among Air Force people, never fly the A model of anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so we had A, B, Cs, and eventually we had the Ds, which really is the plane that gave it its beautiful appearance. And uh, all the later models uh, look pretty much like the D. The, uh, and how long were you uh, flying those flying, the flying fortresses before you, you switched to the Liberators? Almost a year. Almost a year. Mm -hmm. And the, how did you come, up, come about to go into to the B-24s uh, versus the uh, b 17 Oh, I just got transferred. It just followed the orders, huh? Yep, yep. I, my first flight in the B-24 was in the California desert. And the inside of an airplane, all metal skin and no uh, insulation, temperature would be 130 or more. And they'd back up a GI truck with a big fan on it, and they'd ventilate a plane that was scheduled to fly. Mm -hmm. And you better get it off the ground <laughs> in a half hour. <laughs> Tell me about 
the flight itself uh, and uh, what your activities were on board uh, beside the final run there as you're going into the... Well, <clears throat> uh, at briefing, they give us the altitude that we would fly, uh, our speed on the bomb approach, and they give us a rough idea of the temperature aloft, but of course we had thermometers, I could make corrections there. So as soon as we were off the ground, I'd set a lot of this information into my bomb site. And then when we were, oh, up to 10,000 or so on, on our way towards the target, it would take, I can only guess now that it might have taken an hour to build up a big formation and you're circling over a, an assigned area. So when the formation is all assembled, we'd head out for the target and climb on course. Uh, we'd start out two or 3,000 feet and climb up to 20 before we were halfway to the target. And uh, on the way, I would go back to the bomb bay and take all the safety pins out of my bombs. Uh, I might have five bombs, I might have 15 or more, depending on their size. And every one had a nose fuse and a tail fuse. And I would have to take out the safety pins from both fuses. And um, so that when they dropped, they would be armed, they would explode. If I left those pins in, the bomb would hit the ground and not explode. So they weren't as delicate as some people think. A fuse had five elements in it. A primer, much like the, uh, the center spot on a rifle bullet. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very sensitive, but it didn't put out much explosive power and it would set off the next element in there, which was uh, less sensitive and uh, put out a little more power. And eventually you get to the final uh, charge in the fuse, the detonator. And that put out enough explosive power to set off the, uh, the big charge in the bomb. So, I could drop, if I had to drop them in friendly territory, which didn't often happen, but an emergency with a plane and so forth, uh, I would go back and put the pins in so they wouldn't explode when they hit the ground. That didn't happen very often. Uh, to me, it never happened. The, um, did you have any other responsibilities? Uh, during that flight? Well, not usually. Although one time when we crashed, uh, we knew we were going to get back to our own base, but we knew we couldn't make a proper landing. So I was responsible for getting all the crew that the pilot didn't need right there with him. I get them all back in what we called the waste of the airplane. It was the area behind the bomb bay where the side gunners were. I get them, we'd sit in a ditching position 
Bill, you sit here with your back against the wall. You're facing the tail of the airplane. Joe, you sit there, same way. Now, Harry, you sit uh, against his knees. Mm -hmm. Oh, you bring your knees up like this. So I'd have, have them seated like this, and everybody does this to avoid a whiplash. And once you're on the ground and the real impact is over, um, then you can get up and be ready to jump out the window because you expect fire. It doesn't always happen, but you don't wait to see. Right. And the, we, our problem was that our hydraulic system was shot out. So the landing gear is put down hydraulically, but there is provision for cranking it. It's a terrific job, but was, there was plenty of time to do it before we got home. And you couldn't put your flaps down, which allows you to fly much slower. Uh, it increases the lift of the wing, and you could land at about 120 miles an hour instead of 160. But we couldn't use the flaps, so we landed at full flying speed. And then we had no brakes. They're hydraulic. But the B-24 sits very low on the ground and uh, has a nose wheel. Uh, so the pilot, as long as he's got a good flow of air over the tail, he can keep the back end of the plane down and drag the belly on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that was our only braking right. capacity. And of course, uh, we didn't land on the runway because if we piled up there, all the guys behind us couldn't get right. in. So they told us to land on a plowed up stony area parallel to the runway, and that tore up the belly of the airplane, and stones and dirt kept were coming up <laughs> through the floor. <laughs> Took 30 days to repair it. It wasn't our airplane. Ours was having an engine changed, and another crew had had three pretty rough days in a row, and they were due time out. And their airplane was fine, so we were assigned to their airplane. Until the day we left to come back to the States, they blamed my pilot for wrecking their airplane. <laughs> okay. The Germans didn't do it. <laughs> Harry Prosser <laughs> did it. Okay. Uh, up in the nose of the plane where you were sitting, you also had uh, uh, machine guns up there for defensive armament? There was a turret a nose turret, and the navigator sat in the nose turret. Mm -hmm. And he had his maps in his lap, and uh, he'd have a little computer, calculator, and um, a um, oh, pair of dividers or something to check distances on the map. And uh, he would give me information that he might need later, and I'd stand at his table and, and write the information down mm -hmm. until it was time to get down on my little chair at the bomb site. Now, on that uh, crash that I just described, <clears throat> the flight engineer would normally stand beside the pilot or behind him and read airspeeds. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was, no, this was on our first crash that I did this, uh, where we lost all of our gasoline in half an hour, and we landed on a British fighter field. But 
I stood in back of the pilot, and I'm looking over his shoulder at the airspeed. He has to look at that runway, but he has to know his speed, too. He doesn't want to stall. Mm -hmm. So I just kept calling 135, 132, 30, 28, 125, eventually 120 touchdown. But that, that was something that, at the spur of the moment, mm -hmm. I could be useful. How big was the crew on the, on the uh, E-24s? Uh, on both 17 and 24, the crew was 10. Yeah. Four officers and six enlisted men. You brought back some souvenirs here from your, your uh, experience. Yes, on one flight, we were not allowed to keep a diary, so some fellas did, and I wish I had. I have no idea where we were or when this was, other than the fact that it was in the spring of 44, somewhere over Germany, or maybe Austria. Maybe the Palestine oil fields in Romania, I don't know. One of the most important days of my life, and I don't know when it was. But I had this hat on, When one of the gunners said flak, and we all had our earphones with anybody that spoke, we'd all hear it. And I, when he said flak, I didn't even look out the window. I took this off while I reached for my steel helmet, and right here it flew out of my hand. My, um, you can see how well it's torn. Now here are a couple pieces of shrapnel. I'm not saying that either of these did it, but these. I found one on the table and one on the floor, so I saved them. Um, my hand didn't get hit and my face didn't get hit. But that close. Huh? I believe in guardian angels. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, how long did you spend uh, in the Air Corps? A little over five years. I got out just as they were starting to fix up papers for the divorce from the Air Corps, divorce from the Army, and becoming the U.S. Air Force. And uh, you were you were stationed in Europe the entire time? I was in Italy, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you came home from the service, and uh, so what, what happened then? Well, when I came home from overseas, I went back to Midland, the bombing school where I trained, and there were several bombing schools. And I taught there for about a year. Then I, when the school closed, I was sent to um, Mather Field near Sacramento, California. And then I uh, asked for an assignment in the photo lab. And I was there for approximately a year. I got out, I got home to stay a few days before Christmas in 46. And my terminal leave was up in sometime in January. And I, um, my next door neighbor owned a fleet of taxis. So I drove a taxi part time. And I went, uh, I went to school in Philadelphia to study commercial and portrait photography. And where were you living at the time? 1220 West Airy Street. Okay. 
Tell us about uh, <clears throat> a little bit about your school and uh, where you went to photography school. Howard Yawn, who had worked for um, Agfa Ansco Corporation, uh, he left them and opened this school to teach photography. And I took a course in portrait, and I took a course in commercial, but I never did it because about the time I finished, I got a job at the newspaper as a photographer. So I never had to invest in all the gear for a portrait studio. Yeah. Where, which, which newspaper are you talking about? The Times Herald in Norristown. And uh, I went there in July of 1942. I got married in October of 42. And I stayed 35 years at the paper. So you got married in 1942. And, uh, I'm sorry. No, I said 42. 42. 49. 49. I started in July at the newspaper and got married that, that October. Uh, a girl from um, Roxborough, the upper part of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. A friend of my mother's said, uh, she was about halfway from my age to my mother's age, and really a friend of the family. And she said, you don't go out at night. I said, no, you don't have a girlfriend, no. I've got the girl for you. Uh-oh, here we go again. My sister tried that before the war. <laughs> but I agreed to meet her, and two years later I married Very her. Very good. Where were you married? Uh, All Saints Episcopal Church on Hawes Avenue yeah, in Norristown, where my parents were married and where I was baptized. Okay. So where did you live at that time after you were married? For a few months, we stayed at my parents' home on Airy Street. And then we took an apartment on Buttonwood Street. We were there a year or so. And we took a a bigger apartment and a first floor apartment on Main Street across from the Moose. The Moose Lodge was there. And the Elks was half a block away. (laughs) They're both gone now. So many. Organizations of that sort, fraternal organizations, have gone by the wayside. And we, uh, seven years after I got married, I was at a reserve Army uh, Air Force Reserve meeting one night when my wife and her father went out for a ride. And she took him over through King of Prussia area. And they saw this big sign at uh, 202 and um, Henderson, uh, Candlebrook development. Let's go look, he said. All right. When I got home that night, she was so wound up about this, <laughs> these homes in Candlebrook. So I got hold of a friend who was an architect, and we went over together. He said, it's a development home, no more, no less. Uh, He said, uh, price-wise, the price reflects what it is. So we bought it. And shortly became friends with another man on the same street, 
man and wife who were at least 15 years my senior, and he was already retired. And we'd go out to dinner together. We'd visit in each other's homes. And he went to one, one afternoon, he was walking through Wanamaker's store. And here's a man sitting there carving and giving a demonstration, making a bird. And he always said, there's a bird in that piece of wood. I just have to find it and let it out. So when Bill told me about it, and he said that this man has a studio where he teaches down below Westchester, I said, well, let's go down and see him. That's where I learned to make these birds. Well, they're, they're handsome birds. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about the school down in, the, in, in the, you said, Westchester? Yeah, below Westchester, Westchester at a place called Strode's Corner. Mm -hmm. um, this man just had a, a shop there. I said studio, but it's, it's his shop where he produces things like this, and he produces birds this big. Um, so we just went there, and he taught us how to do it. One man, and most of it was done with X-Acto knives. And one man in our class dropped an X-Acto knife that landed blade first in his thigh and quivered like that. <laughs> he pulled it out. And the teacher wasn't very sympathetic. He says, here, and hand him a bottle of iodine. <laughs> Get back to work. Uh, OK. The, uh, <clears throat> so you were telling me earlier that uh, you'd produced a number of these birds. Yes, I made maybe a dozen mallard ducks, but they were smaller than this. That was our first exercise. We had to make. I think it was a dozen of those before we tackled anything else. And then we had our choice of several different things. I made uh, four or five egrets and uh, I don't know, three, four Canada geese. This is a little more difficult to make because of the detail in the wings. Uh, where I live, there are two men who carve birds, but they never have the wings spread. They just have a bird standing there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was the wings spread that made my friend out in New Mexico say, oh, that's art. In flight yet, she yes. said. I can understand that comment. It is art. <laughs> Actually, she was the first woman I ever loved. But I, I met her in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't join the Mormon church. So, uh, but I did send her a birthday card a couple of years ago after no contact for 58 years. So I went out to Albuquerque to see the Bloom Fiesta. And uh, while I was there, I drove 180 miles each way for a five hour visit. Her husband's a retired infantry colonel. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I drove back to Albuquerque, then I flew to Denver and then to Phoenix to visit family. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Now, tell us a little bit about your home in Candlebrook. What was that like? We loved it. Two-story. Uh, some people call it a colonial. I don't see that. But uh, the living room was quite large. Um, the actual dimensions of the house, 24, front to, 24 feet front to back and 36 feet side to side. And the lot was 60 feet wider than the house, so you had 30 feet here and 30 feet here. Uh, we stayed there 47 years, or I did. Um, my wife lost an eye to melanoma inside the eyeball, pushing up the retina. Discovered it on Monday, tests on Tuesday, took her eye out on Thursday. She came home on Sunday and drove the car the next Friday. She bounced right back. Yeah. And she lived 25 years after that. And I believe that most people die within a year after losing an eye to melanoma. Mm -hmm. I've known only three. One died in seven months, one died in 11 months, and one died in two years. And she lived 25. We never had children, of course. We were in, in our 30s when we got married, and then she had four miscarriages. But we both came from big families. We had a lot of nieces and nephews that we could take places. But I, I worked for the paper seven years before I moved over here. Mm -hmm. So I got to know, as I did in other communities surrounding Norristown, I got to know the supervisors and uh, school officials, superintendent of schools, uh, principal of the high school, and some of the grade schools. Mm -hmm. Every policeman within 10 miles of Norristown, because we went out and photographed every darn fender bender. <laughs> I was thinking of the police force here when I moved in here. John Boyle was the chief, and he had five officers. Um, I'll wait, have wait, to look wait, at... What year was that, do you recall? Uh, 56. Mm -hmm. Make sure I uh, remember all the names. John, John Boyle was the chief, Jack Brennan, Al Hume, Bill Blewett, Walt Fries, and Walt Nashowski. They were the police force. Now, Jack Brennan was on the group that organized the fire department, the uh, King of Prussia Fire Company, and he was the first chief. And his first call as chief was his own house. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> now, Eileen is a niece to him. Mm -hmm. uh, Al Hume. Years later, after Al died, my wife and I were going to, uh, we parked in the lot at um, Gennardi's when they were down at Abrams. And a woman parked near us was in tears and upset. She was like that. 
And my wife knew her because she had been a cashier at uh, the AMP years ago. And my wife said, Mary, what's the matter? I locked my keys in my car. Do you have any at home that, yes. She said, Bob will take you home while I go in and start my shopping. So all I knew was her name was Mary. And she told me, turn here and turn there, turn in this driveway. And I said, I know this house. Al Hume lived here. And I remember when he had a fire in his garage. <laughs> she said, yes, he was my husband. Small world. And Bill Blewett, his cousin was on the police force in uh, White Marsh Township and eventually became chief. And when he retired from the police force, he went to work for the coroner. And uh, when I went there, the coroner's office for a picture of something, I don't remember what, Bill said, Bob, I owe you one. Uh, suppose we give you a free autopsy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> And Walt Nashelsky, Walt ran a stop sign at Trooper Road and uh, a stoplight at Trooper Road and uh, Germantown Pike, and he hit a woman in her driver's door. Friend of mine, she lost her left eye from that accident. Um, one time, a house at the end of my block caught fire in the middle of the night, and it woke us, uh, and I said, those fire trucks are awful close. I went to the bedroom window, and sure enough, it was up at the corner. And the owner of the house set fire to it himself and then went and sat on the curb across the street. He was wifty, and he was having um, domestic troubles, and his wife and kids went to her mother, and then he lit the house. He went out, closed the door, and sat on the curb, and it didn't go up. So he went back and opened the front door. He let fresh air in. It had consumed all the oxygen, but when he opened the door, whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... The next day, Nashelsky and I forget what other officer came to my house. Bob, will you take pictures for us up at this house that, where the fire was? It, the house was not destroyed. Um, I said, well, I'm only out of the hospital a couple of days, and I, can't, I can hardly walk. It was my legs were the problem. I had had an injury. Uh, but... Uh, I can do it if you help me. Carry my gear, hand me what I need. This is when we used the big speed graphic cameras. Mm -hmm. And for one picture, they picked me up and put me on a picnic table to get a little higher right. elevation. And I said, now I can't develop these for maybe a month. That's all right, as long as, you know, we, as, long as we know we have them. We were the Montgomery County's great home newspaper, which right. is what we claimed over the masthead. Right. Um, and I got all over the county. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Times-Herald. 
Well, uh, in a town like Norristown, a newspaper will not be like a big city paper. Uh, we didn't carry as much national and world news. We, we carried it, but not to the extent that the Inquirer would. But on the other hand, the Inquirer or the Bulletin, which was in existence then, uh, they would cover towns like Norristown only uh, if there was some big controversy in, in a um, town council meeting or a real bad fire. But we, the hometown paper, we could sell to our public because we would take pictures of the Lions Club installing officers or giving a check to uh, some uh, charity, or five new policemen being sworn in, um, some church function, all that sort of thing, which is local news. And the big city paper, they couldn't do that. They couldn't do it in all the communities that they covered. So there was that niche for a local paper. And our circulation, when I started, was around 32,000. I think it got up something like close to 40,000. I've been told recently that it's way below that now, um, daily circulation. We had, when I started, we had only four women in the newsroom. And three of those were the social department, which was traditionally, quote, women's work. <laughs> and then gradually they hired others as reporters. But um, in those days, you could still call a woman a girl. And nobody was offended if you pat a girl on the shoulder or she might pat a man on the shoulder. Hey, that was a good story you did yesterday. Nobody was offended. But then we started hearing in the late 60s or somewhere around that, we started hearing, I can open my own doors. <laughs> you don't have to pull a chair out for me. <laughs> um, I don't know what, our editors and reporters were pretty much local people. They knew the community. They grew up in Norristown or Bridgeport. Uh, then we started getting, hiring reporters from somewhere else. And they said some rather stupid things in some of their articles because they didn't understand. Uh, one, one intersection on Markley Street, this is a small matter, but um, the streets that cross have different names on opposite sides of Markley Street. And they were talking about, the borough was talking about a traffic light to install there. And he went to the uh, town council meeting and everywhere that he mentioned it, he said these two intersections <laughs> okay. because he heard 
Basin Street and uh, Harding Boulevard, I think, are the mm -hmm. two streets. Mm -hmm. And uh, these two intersections. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to know the town yeah, to know these things. Right. Now, talking about the school district, when I started working at the Herald, Dr. Martin was the superintendent of schools. I don't know if you were in Upper Marion at that time. No. Uh, later on, I got to know Charlie Scott pretty well. Dr. Scott was a superintendent. Uh, Bob Strine was the principal of the high school. His wife, Carolyn, died after they moved up to Meadowood uh, retirement Center in Worcester. Bob is still there. He's not well, but he's still pretty feisty. Another woman I know there, and I'm sorry I've never gone up to see Bob, but another woman there played cards with him, I think, twice, and she said, never again. <laughs> uh, now, some people at that age playing cards get so confused, not Bob. And he's demanding. <laughs> okay. And uh, not for her. <laughs> <laughs> Takes his card game pretty seriously. He huh? does. And I played pinochle with people like that. And now my sister and her husband, uh, they could play pinochle in a friendly game. Her husband, when he'd play with his buddies, he could be cutthroat. <laughs> But otherwise, playing with us, you know, you can have a conversation. Uh -huh. And some people, once you pick up the cards, there's no conversation at all. And um, we just stopped visiting a couple of friends for that reason. Drive close to an hour to get out to before turnpikes, get out to the way out in northeast Philly, and then they get the cards out and all conversation ceases. And we, that's not my way and <laughs> my wife's way. And we just finally never went back, back. to visit them. They took uh, all the fun out of it. Huh? Yeah. When I moved in, Henderson Road was two lane blacktop with a high crown. Center of the road was considerably higher than, than the edges, and a deep ditch on both sides. That was the way they built roads when they were dirt roads, for drainage. Sure. Uh, and when they started paving roads, for many years they still built them that way. Egypt Road in Jeffersonville was like that. Um, 202 was cement, but it was two lanes. Oh, and there were sinkholes along 202. You may remember some of those. Mm -hmm. One at King Manor, the um, police chief and township manager and uh, township engineer were there. You know, what can we do about this? They put up a barricade. Here comes a guy. Driving, he drove around the barricade, 
darn if he didn't hit the township engineer. Didn't hurt him, uh -huh. but he hit him. <laughs> so they arrested him, arrested this guy. Turned out to be a professor. Uh, I think it was Penn, but I'm not sure. It's too long ago. So they took him before a magistrate, and the magistrate set um, bail. The guy heads for the door. And a policeman steps in front of him, and the magistrate said, where do you think you're going? Well, I don't have that money with me. I'm going to go home and get it. Uh-uh. There's the telephone. <laughs> Another sinkhole where the garage is now for the um, mall, they lowered a man on a rope down 15 or 20 feet into the hole, and he... Uh, he dumped a bottle of a very, uh, very intense dye. It, it's a chemical name. It's an eosine dye. Mm -hmm. And uh, no matter how diluted it gets, it still is brilliant. And they hoped that it would show up somewhere. They, there was a thought that, that there was an underground stream that might come up in the Schuylkill River. So they looked for this dye in the river for a couple of weeks. I don't know how long, but it never showed. Sinkholes were always a big concern here in the township. That's always true in limestone country, because limestone is soluble. It takes a long time, but right. it is soluble. Look at the um, Carlsbad Caverns and places like that. that. That's limestone. Mm -hmm. And the way these stalactites and stalagmites grow is because of the dripping. Water from the soil comes down one of these mm -hmm. stalactites and a drop falls off, but it leaves some solid, so dissolved limestone at that tip. It keeps getting longer. And when it lands and evaporates, it deposits a little limestone, and the stalagmite grows. Right. Well, if there's flowing water, as we suspect there is here, underground, it'll cause caverns <clears throat> under there. And this is why they think that there's an underground stream there. There must be. Are there caverns that you know of here in the township? No. no, except that if they could explore where this goes, they might find a, mm -hmm. a room of some size under a limestone canopy. I don't know. I'm not a geologist mm -hmm. nor an engineer. Yeah. Uh, give you an idea of... of how the economy swells. I moved here in October of 1956. I paid $13,000 for my house. I sold it in 2003 for 190000 The man who bought it from me was an investor. He put a new kitchen in it, and he painted the house a, a glaring white, which the neighbors didn't like. <laughs> Uh, and he sold it for 280000 in eight months. In eight months. 
Okay. Well, that was a good investment for him. Yeah. And the day we made settlement, he was in a hurry. He had to go, he had another appointment to make settlement on another property. <laughs> Were you here when the, uh, I guess it was the Roofers Union, tore down a fence up at, uh, just outside yeah, of Valley Forge, Forge Park? Park right. This, this is uh, the Aldermas project. Aldermas, yeah. Now, I, I didn't know Aldermas. I'd met him a few times, but I knew his father. His father was a teacher at Norristown High School. In fact, even he asked me when I was there to take a picture at his class, he asked me to give a little explanation of how my strobe light works. Uh, and he would buy a piece of ground, build a house on it and sell it, and Leon and a cousin would work for him and they'd build a house and sell it, buy another piece of ground and build a house and sell it. This is what got Leon interested in this kind of work, but he wasn't going to build a house and sell it. He, he went big. Yeah, going to build a hotel and sell it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I admire the way he stood up to, to the goons, I'll say. Right. Uh, you know, Jack Brennan was here, and he just he he remembered that episode and discussed that episode with us too. Of the uh, fence, the right. the, the union. Yeah, the uh, I forget the name now of the state trooper that was in charge up there, but uh, I knew him because of my work. And when he retired, he became a the township official somewhere up on the Perkyoman Valley. Oh, high school principals, there was J.C. Smith. That's right. <laughs> but what, do you, I, what do you remember about that story? Well, I know a little bit that never made the press. When he put on a uniform of, uh, of Brinks or one of those companies, and he robbed the... Um, Shears Roebuck store over in, uh, over on the main line. Um, a friend of mine worked in that office, but it was her day off, her night off. He came at the appointed time that the uh, armored truck would come, and they gave him the money. My friend, had she been working that night, would have known he was an imposter. Interesting. The and then his that was the beginning of the worst things came along, like the murder of this teacher, and uh, and his own daughter and her husband disappeared. They're still missing. Right. Then in the township offices, there was George Beck. He that was when I first started to work. Uh, at the paper. And then Howard Walker. A lot of people would remember Howard. Yeah, he was on our program. He was? Yeah. Well, he's now in a retirement place in, in Lansdale, the old uh, North Penn Hospital on Main Street in Lansdale. Mm -hmm. 
or Broad Street mm-hmm. in Lansdale. I talked to him shortly before he went in there, and I guess that's been, <laughs> again, I lose track of time. It's probably been a year ago, mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, and then I think Howard was responsible for hiring Paul Flynn as the first professional township manager. I think he was hired when Howard was a supervisor. Um, A woman uh, in my church, Paul Flynn came from, I think, Michigan. Wherever it was, this woman in my church came from the same town and she knew him. She knew Paul. Valley Forge Park, which should be dear to everybody in the township. It was a state park for many, many years. And the state officials there kind of rewrote history. Um, A Polish group offered to pay for the refurbishing of a house there that they thought was the headquarters of um, Uh, Pulaski. Yes, that's right. They wanted to uh, have that house identified as Pulaski's headquarters and they'd pay for the renovation. So the park officials said, we're not sure, but okay, they're willing to spend the money. That's rewriting history. The big house at the traffic light in the park, that for, for years was known as the bake house. That's right, yeah. And It may well have served as a bakery for a time, but it served a more important function. When the National Park Service took over, they did a lot of research. They tore up roads that didn't exist in revolutionary times. They tore down the pretty white picket fence around Washington's headquarters. It shouldn't have been there. Uh, And they put up a rail fence such as would have been would have been there at the time. Uh, And a big big refreshment stand and souvenir shop was built behind Washington's headquarters. Eventually that was taken down. It was not in keeping, didn't belong there. And I talked to Gil Lusk, who was the first superintendent of the park when it became a national park. Mm -hmm. And he said, we've got a lot of problems uh, for the way that the state rewrote history. And he said, we're fortunate that we can find proof and correct these things. Now, Gil Lusk, the last I knew, uh, was at... um, El Paso at some big national park there. But again, that's been at least 30 years ago, so I don't know where he is now, if he's still working for the Park Service. Do you remember the the wagon train? Yes, I do. 1976? A friend of mine uh, lives in Jeffersonville, relatives of his, uh, they didn't want to uh, follow the rules. They got here well ahead of the scheduled date. 
and they wanted to drive through the park. I don't remember whether they were allowed to or not, but um, when I started to work for the paper, there was no Schuylkill Expressway. The day it was opened, from King of Prussia to Philly, I was in the city. I drove home around two in the afternoon. The very first day the traffic was allowed on the expressway, the man ahead of me threw out a whole newspaper. Now I, I think that's terrible. I, I don't smoke, but if I did, I wouldn't even throw a cigarette butt out. And he threw out a whole newspaper the very first day that the expressway was open. The Candlebrook Corporation was building the Valley Ford Shopping Center. How many homes were in the Candlebrook section? Just, just interrupt you for a second. Well, it was built in three or four sections, and I think there were about 400 houses. Developers, not all of them, because there are some that are nationally famous, but a lot of developers, especially on smaller projects, like the Candlebrook Corporation, there comes a time when they dissolve the corporation. And the same men, the same money, founded the seventh corporation. Who knows what that means? But now you've got no recourse if you've got problems. Candlebrook Corporation no longer exists. And when they built that shopping center, there was an AMP, there was a uh, mom and pop five and 10. They were an English couple. They went out of business because companies like Woolworth say, if you sell to him, you'll never sell to us. And of course, manufacturers had a pretty big market with Woolworths. That's right. So they have to knuckle under. They won't sell to him. They won't sell to him over in uh, Bucks County. The, and that puts the little guy out of business. There was a, um, a deli with a little restaurant, Walt Perry. I don't know whether that name rings a bell to you. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, I knew Walt pretty well before he opened this store because he managed a, a store in Norristown. Well, Walt Perry's place was now Michael's Deli, right? Yes, yes. And it's much larger now. Um, but Walt, I went to take pictures at the uh, golf course in Jeffersonville some Lions Club or some club was having uh, a um, tournament and Walt was playing. And I walked over to a water hole and happened to be where Walt was and his ball went in the water. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I understand you can take it out and have a one-stroke um, penalty. I said, Walt, if you play that ball, I'll take your picture. He got in that cold water. This was in March, the end of March. 
he got in that cold water and he drove that ball out. <laughs> the next day he was on the front page of the sports section. <laughs> Perry's used to be the local uh, gathering place of all the, uh, the township individuals, uh, politicians and so on. I don't know if it still is. Um, although I sometimes go there on a Friday night. Uh, I did go every Friday with several friends who lived here in the township, but one couple moved to Las Vegas. Another couple, the husband died. And that left me with four women and a retarded boy, about 22, three, four. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't go there as much. But um, one of the supervisors, I guess he's still a supervisor, Chuck Volpe. Mm -hmm. Yes. He goes there every Friday night. Maybe other nights, I don't know. Yeah. But if I'm there, I know I'm going to see him. With the evolution of the, of the, uh, of the AMP, it went from uh, what you would call a grocery store to a supermarket. Yes. When I was a kid, there were small AMPs everywhere. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, I think, was the title of the corporation. And... Uh, they were strictly a grocery store, and a town like Norristown may have had two of them. I don't remember. I know there was one on uh, Marshall Street. And uh, even after the Second World War, they were still there, and I took my mother there once or twice a week. The uh, American stores you never hear of, but it's still the same corporation, the Acme. Right. And they were a small grocery store scattered everywhere. And they probably were the first supermarket. That's my guess. I'm not saying it as gospel. Right. When, when you say a grocery store, you, the, the format was you actually had someone wait on you, didn't you? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. You did in department stores, too. <laughs> That's right. The grocery store clerk would have this long pole with a handle on the end of it, or with a grip on the end of it. Yeah, and like that, reach right. a can off the top shelf. And reach up 10, 15 feet and pull down a, <laughs> an item. <laughs> when I was a kid in Audubon, we had a mom-and-pop grocery, and they had a kerosene barrel on the front porch. They had one gasoline pump out front. And they had a barrel of sugar, a, a barrel of molasses with a pump on it. Uh, and they had a barrel of sugar. And in slow time, uh, they would weigh it out in three-pound bags and five-pound bags. Um, and the, the husband of this couple, he would she'd suddenly realize that she hadn't seen him for a little while. She'd go back in the stock room, and there he is with a couple dozen vanilla bottles empty on the floor, and he's out. <laughs> I don't know how many it would take, because the alcohol in one bottle isn't much, but <laughs> you drink enough of them. The Audubon Shrine was then a private farm, a gentleman's farm. Mm -hmm. The Wetherill family owned it. Uh, and... Herbert Wetherill hired a farmer from down on the um, 
Maryland uh, East, Eastern Shore, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to come up there and be caretaker. He said, you can farm anything, you, you can raise anything you want, that's yours. He said, all I ask is that you keep our horses in good shape for riding. They must be exercised. And you have the uh, big house ready anytime we phone you and want to come up. Um, and he had a, a tenant house that he lived in and raised his family. One of his sons would come up to the mom and pop grocery. Their name was Fisher, this grocer. Uh, he would come up on a horse and get whatever his mother told him she needed. He'd get out, go out, uh, somebody go out with him. He'd get up on the horse and stand on the horse in his bare feet, no saddle. They'd hand him his bundle and he'd ride home. <laughs> <laughs> you won't see that today. No. The old township building, for example, you probably wouldn't remember that. Oh, I do remember You that. do? Sure. The Lutheran Church met there when they first formed, the church across the street. And before it was a township building, it was a school. And when the township used the building, I don't think they have more than four or five employees in the building. Of course, there were some um, road people and things like that. I can't remember the name of the man who was in charge of the roads. Uh, but when you look now, five policemen, how many do you have now? 50, 60? It's a, it's a considerable number. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, <laughs> it's a considerable number. And of course, the responsibilities are <laughs> oh, yes. considered considerably more. Oh, yes. Local government now is responsible for so many things that, that nobody worried about before. But this has to happen as population grows. Yeah, our community grows. Over half of my life was right here in King of Prussia, Upper Marion. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had some wonderful experiences. I did. And some great memories. And I wish some of the people that I knew on Fox Run were still here. Some have died, some have moved away. But that's life. Yeah. But I would say my 87 years have given me a lot of fun. And as I said, half of it was here. Well, Bob, we really appreciate you coming by today. It's been great talking to you. It's been fun. It's been great talking to you. And it's you. brought back a lot uh, with me. That's it for this edition of Remember When. If you'd like to make a suggestion or comment on this program, please use the following contact information. Thanks for watching. Until next time and always, Remember When. Remember When.